You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I speak with my friend and co-host William Green about the books that have made us richer, wiser, and happier. We discuss how we curate a book list, take notes, and read books. We also discuss artificial intelligence impact on reading and writing books, and why the master might appear when the student is ready. And, you guessed it, everything else in between. If you love books, you don't want to miss out on this episode. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and today I'm here with my co-host, William Green. And we got to talk, as you guys know, once a quarter about what has made us richer, wiser, and happier. And you're listening to the Q2 2023 episode. William, how are you today? Hi, Stig. It's lovely to be here. I was saying to my wife this morning, I have the best job. I get to come and chat with Stig about books and what we've learned over the last quarter. And I was just thinking, you know, we in some ways hit the jackpot that this actually is what we get to discuss. So I feel very fortunate and happy to be here with you. Thank you. For the listeners out there, I should premise this as saying that the discussion here today should have three parts. And so part one would be how we find books to read. Part two, books that may have made us richer, wiser, and happier. It would be up for the, <laughs> for the listeners to decide. And then part three, how we encourage reading and perhaps if we should be encouraged reading in the first place. So let me start by throwing it over to you, William, to the first part here. How do you find which books to read? Yeah, it'll shock you to know that I'm not very systematic in my approach to this stick, but I am relentless and voracious. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed by how much I read and by how much I buy books. It's really kind of a, well, the books are sort of the lifeblood of my life, right? And I just don't stop. And so I'm constantly buying books and I'm my wife was complaining this morning. She was saying, couldn't you go to the library sometimes and get books in there? But I can't really because I mark books up very heavily. I write in them. And so I'm working with books. I mean, they're, they're like partners in life. And so I'm finding them from everywhere. And there's a very low barrier for me to buy a book. I mean, to give you an example, like this morning, I had emailed Nick Sleep, who I write about at some length, in my book. I'd emailed him maybe a week or so ago, or a few days ago, and I sent him a copy of the podcast that I'd done with Chris Begg because we talked a bit about Nick. And I also mentioned in that email, there's this book, The Snow Leopard by this guy, Peter Matheson, which we can talk about later, which I said is one of the best books I've read in recent years. And I think you'll like it because it's sort of up Nick Sleep's alley. And so he wrote back to me this morning and he said, uh, I said, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the podcast. I really enjoyed it. That's a bit strange hearing about myself in it. But he said, the Snow Leopard is ordered, but I've got to get through this Robert Caro book first, The Power Broker, which is a 1,300-page book by Robert Caro, it's an ex- who's one of the great biographers. And that reminds me, oh, I forgot to read Robert Caro's book, Working, which is about his writing career. And Caro is a hero of mine, wrote this extraordinary biography of Lyndon Johnson. So then I go on Amazon and I order... Caro's book on working just because I remembered it because of Nick mentioning that. And then I'm like, oh, I gave away my copy of John McPhee's book on writing before I even read it. I gave it to my son's ex-girlfriend. I better get that as well. So I'm realizing suddenly that it's like seven in the morning and I've already ordered two books just today. 
So that happens a lot where just something triggers me to remember that there's a particular book that might have something in it that's special, and I just don't even hesitate to order it. And so I have several books a week arriving from Amazon. I mean, often there'll be several a day because there's such a low hurdle because, I mean, I just have this attitude that there could be something in each of these books that could potentially change or enrich my life or help other people because I'm going to think about it or talk about it in some way that could be helpful. And so for me, it's just this sort of endless kind of scavenger hunt. And then I'm constantly getting recommendations from people. So say, you know, I interviewed Bill Miller a couple of months ago at a private event. And at the end, we're sort of walking out and he says, oh, there's this book I've been reading, this novel that I've read twice that's all about mathematicians and scientists. And he's like, it's just great. It's called When We Cease to Understand the World by someone called Benjamin Labatou. And I also look at that and I'm like, what a beautiful title, When We Cease to Understand the World. And so I get that and so I'm reading that. And then this week, I probably, I think I've been sent two books in the last few days by Guy Spear one of which is that book on how we can, what I learned from Darwin about how to invest or something like that, which Manish Pabrai had recommended as well. So there are books coming into me that people are giving me. Then there are these random things that people are recommending. Then I'm stumbling upon things. And then I have, I have a book group as well. It's made up basically of writers. So we just read classic fiction. We only read great novels. And so that forces me to read things like Dostoevsky and Proust and Flaubert and Nabokov and Jane Austen. And so that's an amazing thing as well. And then there's another sort of thread of books. And then the other thing, I guess, is I'm constantly preparing for podcast episodes. So say I have an episode with Pico Aya coming up, who's a great writer, who's extraordinary in multiple ways. And so on my side table in my study, I have eight books of his. And I think I've probably read about four of them so far. And so say, I don't know, before I interviewed someone like Dan Goleman, I probably ordered five of his books. And I probably, I grazed through about three of them. I probably finished a couple of them. Likewise, when Jim Grant came on the podcast, I probably got about eight of his books and I read a bunch of those, some of them from cover to cover, like his one on Bernard Baruch, which is fascinating because Bernard Baruch was a great financier and investor who made a fortune after the Great Depression. So I'm just getting books sort of left, right, and center. But then I'm not reading them in a super linear way where I'm like, I have to finish every book from start to finish. You know, that book that I mentioned, the one that Bill Miller suggested, I found it on a pile by my desk this morning and realized I forgot to finish the last 50 pages. And that happens to me constantly because I'm just juggling so many books at any one time. So I'm not reading in the way that maybe some of our listeners are reading where it's much more systematic and they're reading one book at a time or, and they're taking really neat notes. For me, it's like this sort of, I, like the vampire squid kind of at, uh, attacking the world of words and books from every direction simultaneously. That is so wonderful, William. And I, I would wish I could read like you because I am one of those people who read cover to cover. I have a really hard time not doing it. And I think that's just the way that I'm wired. So if I were doing something today that wasn't on my list, I would put it into my list and then cross it off as done with that. So it's, it's absolutely painful. And I practice not finishing books and I practice not reading from the first page, but I have a really hard time doing it. 
So it's so wonderful hearing how you do it. And it's inspiring to do it like that. That's funny that you say you practice, you know, not finishing. I mean, there's an element of guilt and homework at play here, right? Where you're sort of thinking, well, you know, I've got to complete the task. And I don't have that at all. I have this sense that I'm kind of plunging into books almost randomly to look for something that's going to leap out at me. So right before we started, I opened a book randomly and picked a paragraph that kind of leaps out at me. And likewise, this is, again, a pretty good example of how to... I just grabbed a bunch of books from my side table this morning. So this is a pretty good example of how I buy a book, right? So someone messaged me on LinkedIn the other day, and he said, did I know some way of helping this guy, Derek Sivers, who's looking for some help with distribution or something like that? And I remembered vaguely that I knew who Derek Sivers was, but I couldn't remember why. And then I realized, I think I heard him on a podcast with like Tim Ferriss or something like that in the last few weeks. And so I go on Derek Sivers' website, and there's this book called How to Live, 27 Conflicting Answers and One Weird Conclusion, which already is an interesting thing to me, right? It's like an interesting subtitle. So I opened that yesterday, randomly, in the middle, on page 35. And then I opened it again, randomly, this morning, on the same page. And it says here, nobody cares what you're bad at, and neither should you. Amplify your strengths. Nobody will see the rest. And I look at that and I'm like, that's really interesting. Like, that's something I think about a lot, that I shouldn't be focused on all of the things that I'm not good at. The thing I need to focus on is the, you know, the thing that actually plays to my strengths. And then I look a couple of paragraphs down and it says, mastery is not about doing many things. It's doing one thing insanely well. The more you take on, the less you'll achieve. Say no to everything but your mission. This is your one contribution to the world. Now, this is both true and not true. Like most great truths, like you want to be narrow and you want to be broad. But I think about this question a lot. I mean, we had this discussion months and months ago when I was thinking of setting up a YouTube channel. And you said, no, don't do it. Like the best productivity tool is to say no. And I, and I wrestled with this. And finally, my wife convinced me the other day, just don't do it. And so this idea of focus and mastery is hugely important to me. And so by buying randomly this book the other day, because somebody messaged me on LinkedIn, and then opening it randomly, maybe it's speaking to me in some way, or maybe it's just, you know, as Guy Spear once put it to me, you know, that he has this lovely phrase that he probably stole from somewhere about invitations to serendipity, where, you know, if you go to a party, it's an invitation to serendipity, for example. And so if I buy lots of books, and I'm opening them, and I'm open to the possibility that they're there to talk to me in some way. There are thousands of invitations to serendipity all year because I'm just opening, I'm buying books constantly and I'm looking in there for strange and beautiful things that talk to me. And so I don't need to finish this book by Derek Sivers, and I probably never will, but I'll probably dip into it many times. So I don't need to be linear. Now, I, I wish I were. I mean, I think you have great strengths in the fact that you're more systematic and you're more linear. But that's just not the way I'm built. I mean, I can be reading a book that I really love, and then I literally lose the book. I don't know. I like forget that I was reading it. That's a real, that's a real flaw in my wiring. But on the other hand, the strength in my wiring is because I'm that vampire squid coming at things from so many different directions, I'm able to make these weird connections between this book by Derek Sivers and a, another book by Peter Matheson and another book by Robert Persig. And so that's sort of how I'm reading. So I, I think some of it depends on just how you're built in terms of your, 
you know, it's not that you're wrong to be doing it in a systematic way. That's a beautiful thing. And you're probably much more efficient at figuring out how to take notes, things like that. If I, I, I found I had one book, I went to uh, Vancouver a few weeks ago. I went to the TED conference and I had lunch with Monish there. And I took notes from our lunch. Like he was talking to me about this idea of his that's very interesting. And so I took really fast notes. And then, of course, I couldn't find the notes. And then I looked in a book the other day and I'd written them, I think it was in the back of that Benjamin Labatou book, When We Cease to Understand the World. So I ripped out the notes. That's a great disadvantage to be not systematic that way. But it's also a great advantage in certain ways because it enables me to make weird connections between lots of different things. So tell us, like, how do you do it? What are you doing when you identify books you want to read? And don't do it in a sheepish way. You should be proud <laughs> of the fact that you're more systematic than I am. Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I want to use Manish's cloning framework as I'm picking books. And I'm doing it the same way that I'm picking stocks. And so if I can use that analogy about picking stocks, you know, I would go on Dataroma and I would see China Munger's portfolio is one of my favorite portfolios to check out because there's so little activity. And he works with so much more conviction, which I absolutely love in all walks of life. And so, you know, he has like, I don't know, four or five stocks in there right now. So I know it's very hard to make Munger's portfolio. And so in a similar fashion, I'm also thinking about how does that work whenever it comes to books? If there's someone you really respect and you know that person reads, I don't know, a book a, a week, even more, I think. Manu said in one of your episodes, it was on Rich Wise and Happier episode eight. He talks about how Mongo reads 500 books a year. Not from A to C though, but 500 books that he would either read carefully or browse through. And then you know, he, ha- he has all the annual reports and, and all that good stuff on the side. And so I heard Munger mention Guns, Germs, and Steel, that book, quite a few times. And I looked it up quite a few times. And it's a book I typically wouldn't read, which is probably why it took me so long to read. And I picked it up and it was amazing. I absolutely loved that book. But I used that stock investor, that aroma type of filter because I knew it it came from a very trustworthy source. And I sort of like did the same thing with, say, with Guy Spear, whenever he came on the show and recommended Sapiens by Harari. And again, I looked it up on Amazon a few times like, yeah, I don't think that's for me. But, you know, Guy reads a lot and really loved it. So I picked it up and lo and behold, all Harari's books or at least that series, I haven't read the others. Absolutely wonderful. And so I typically gravitate towards that approach. I kind of feel it's the most powerful for me. If I can continue with this analogy between stock investing and picking books, I would say that Sometimes I do find myself going on Amazon and just browsing just because I don't know, there's something in my brain, like whenever I see book covers, even if it's not like real books, you know, but just digital, it's just something about it makes me happy. And so I do that, but I also kind of feel that it's not always the best way to find books for me. It's a bit like whenever you're using a stock screener, you're sort of like forcing the action, sort of like forcing yourself to invest in that stock or start researching that stock. Whereas I kind of feel the same thing happening on Amazon, like this sort of look interesting. Amazon's algorithm is really telling me I need to, to pick it up. It has all of these five-star views. I should do it because I kind of feel I become susceptible to this social proof where I get drawn to these books that a lot of people really like, or at least I can look, see their views. They really like them. And there's definitely an element of wisdom of the crowds whenever you see very popular books, but I also feel that you lose out on some of the good stuff, like some of the really hidden gems, because 
you realize it only has eight reviews. And <laughs> but it's actually a wonderful book. And so if you sort of like stay in that Amazon ecosystem, I sometimes feel you do yourself a disservice. And I don't know if this is a good analogy, but it's almost like reading a 10Q or 10K without knowing what the stock price is. And you figure out, is this a good company? Instead of getting all kinds of emotions riled up before you start looking at the uh, stock price. So I guess that's how I find my books, uh, yeah, William. much more systematic. I was thinking, I, I don't think I ever pick a book based on the number of reviews or five-star reviews or something like that. Like I, I mean, I read these obscure books out of nowhere, right? So I, I was talking to Arnold Vandenberg the other day, right? Who's been a guest on the podcast and is going to be a guest on the podcast again soon, who's extraordinary. And we were chatting on the phone. He mentioned a book called The Tao of Physics. And I think it's like 35 years old. And it's a book about the intersection between modern physics and Eastern mysticism. And I'm like, that's cool. And so before the call is even over, like I'm literally, I'm ordering it as we speak. And then we're mentioning, we're talking about something else. And for some reason, reincarnation comes up. And so I'm ordering him a book as we speak about reincarnation. I can't even remember if I've sent the same book to him before. I know that I've sent books by the same author before. And I think we once had this discussion about reincarnation. He sent me something like 15 books by different authors. So for me, often the joy is in going for really weird, obscure stuff. I mean, I opened that book randomly on Eastern mysticism and physics. And that's really interesting to me because, I mean, Josh Waitskin, who I talk about quite a bit, who wrote this great book, The Art of Learning, talks about this phrase, thematic interconnectedness, where you're looking for these themes that come up in different disciplines. And so one of the things that's really interesting about his book, The Art of Learning, is that he finds parallels between chess, where he was a master, I guess grandmaster, I'm not no expert on, on the world of chess, but he was the kid, the prodigy in the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. That was about him. And then he became a Tai Chi Chuan push hands world champion and a jujitsu black belt. And then he's become a sort of hedge fund whisperer, right? An expert on high performance in the world of investing. And now he's off, you know, in Central America doing surfing and foil surfing with Chris Begg, who I did this podcast with a couple of weeks ago. So it's all about the quest for excellence. But he's looking for excellence in all of these different fields. And so for me, I'm less interested in, you know, does everyone love this book? They all say this book's great. I'm looking for thematic interconnectedness where I'm going off and I'm reading some weird book and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. There's this in physics and there's this in Eastern mysticism and they figured out the same thing. And so, for example, when I was reading The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin, one of the things that really struck me was that he talked about the power of simplicity and he talks about the fact that when he was doing martial arts, he would kind of make the move incredibly slow, for example. Or when he was doing chess, he would think, well, let's look at the end game where there are only three pieces left or something. And so he would reduce a very complex thing to something very simple. And then I would start to see simplicity like that, the ability to simplify in all of these different areas of life. And I would start to think, oh, this is kind of master principle. So I would go off and I'd interview someone like Joe Greenblatt, and Joel Greenblatt, who's one of the greatest investors of our time, would say, look, the entire essence of investing comes down to one thing, which is you value a business, you value an asset, and then you buy it for much less than it's worth. And he's like, that's it. That's the whole game. 
And then I would go off to Fidelity and I interview Will Danoff, who's one of the great mutual fund managers of our time, who's managing 200 billion or so dollars. And Will Danoff would say, look, it all comes down to this, stocks follow earnings. And so if I buy a company that is going to double its earnings per share over the next five years, then all things being equal, it's pretty much likely that it's going to, its stock price will double too. And so he would keep buying best of breed businesses like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Tesla, often very early in their trajectory. I mean, he's an amazing fund manager. But so that in a way is how I'm reading, where I'm looking for themes that run through all sorts of different areas. So it's not necessarily that I'm like, I've got to figure out everything that Daniel Kahneman said, or I've got to figure out everything in guns, germs, and steel. It's like, I'm going in and I'm looking for something where I'm like, there's some sort of pattern recognition. So to give you an example, there was some book I was reading recently. I can't remember. I think it was by a guy, an English writer, who I think is dead now, who had written a book about poker that I read many, many years ago. And he's just a really good writer. I'm forgetting his name, sorry. But he'd written a book about mountain climbing. And I start reading this short book about mountain climbing. It's called something like Feeding the Rat or something like that. And um, which is a great title. It has rat in the title anyway. And there's a lot of stuff in there about avoiding disaster. So it's really connected to the idea of the margin of safety and investing. And so I'm reading a book about mountaineering. Yeah, I think it's called Feeding the Rat. Reading a book about mountaineering because it gives me some insight into how to survive as an investor. And then I'm watching that Alex Honnold documentary that we've talked about in the past, Free Solo, about climbing a mountain, El Capitan, with no equipment on his own, and how he's mitigating risk. And so in a way, it's just a different kind of reading where it's much less linear and it's much more looking for ideas that enrich our understanding of certain principles for how to operate in the world. Does any of that make any sense at all, Stick? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it probably also, partly probably stems from the way you're wired, but it's, I think it also comes from which journey are you on? Like, what do you want to achieve? One quick example. So I get all these books sent to me and my wife has said, to me more than once because, you know, there's only so much space we have in our condo. Couldn't you just read them on Audible? But it's, you know, it's, there is an emotional thing about books. There is an emotional thing about being surrounded by wisdom. That's just, it's not the same as having 2000 titles on your Audible. I love Audible. Don't get me wrong. And I also read audiobooks whenever I can't get the real thing, but it's in that order. And it's wonderful that you don't feel that sense of, guilt, for the lack of better words, whenever you're, you only read like three chapters in the book. And I, I can constantly find myself whenever I'm reading a book saying, I'm here at chapter three, and I really look forward to chapter six, whereas I feel you'll probably just go to chapter six. And you know, my, I don't know if the audience can resonate with that, but I've, I've already done the, I'm 14.28% into the book. Um, because it's, it's one seventh. And so, you know, I, I, <laughs> I sort of like do that as I'm reading, which probably Seems like a lot of work to people tuning in, unless they're wired that way and they just listen or they just read the same way. So what is the goal stick? Like when you think of the game that you're playing when you're reading, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to become wise? Are you trying to become a better investor? Are you trying to assuage your guilty conscience and do your schoolwork properly? Like 
And none of these things are wrong. I'm just, I'm just curious, like, what's the game? I mean, I think it's helpful for our listeners to be thinking, like, why am I doing all this reading? Or should I do it? Yeah, I, I absolutely love that you asked that question, because it is a good segue into talking about books that have made us richer, wiser, and happier. But I, I'd say that's my goal. And perhaps today, less richer and more wiser and happier. Whereas if you ask me perhaps 10 years ago, I would never pick up something that wasn't about investing and being a smarter business person. I was very single-minded. And I guess to a lot of people, I probably still would be, but I I am practicing the art of indulging in a book that is not supposed to make me smarter, but just just make me happy. I think I'm actually reading for the most part to learn how to live. I mean, part of that is to become financially secure enough that I can live in a way that's totally true to who I am or as true as it can be and not to be subservient to somebody who I don't like. And so making money is important and I love the game of investing. So there's something intellectually fascinating about it to me, but I'm not really trying to build a business. Like, like I can't be bothered to read books on like how to market myself or how to build a brand. Like I'm just not interested. I know that I should be, but <laughs> I'm just not interested. I mean, even that, that phrase, like I said to you, like uh, that I'm interested in figuring out how to live, like there's a beautiful book. It's by an author called Sarah Bakewell, who writes really beautifully, called Montaigne, the French philosopher from the 16th century, I think. And it's how to live a life in one question and 20 attempts at an answer. And that to me is a really beautiful thing, right? So when I first got that years and years ago, it was recommended to me by a friend of mine, Nina Monk, who's a very good writer, has written multiple books. And it had helped her. And so I read that and it, it's kind of profound and it's beautiful. It's a meditation on Montaigne's life and what he figured out about everything from mortality to other people's cultures and how people view things differently. And our values are kind of often somewhat arbitrary and prejudiced. So all these different insights. And then I remember I'd interviewed Joel Tillinghast, this great fidelity fund manager for my book for Richard Wise Happier. And, and I could see that there's a, there's a kind of soulfulness and a little bit of sadness in Joel sometimes. And, I, and so I remember just sending him the book afterwards. And then I was interviewing Matt McLennan, who's become a close friend of mine from First Eagle, who I also wrote about in the book. I interviewed him in New York and he just has this really, really beautiful mind, like a very elegant mind and is just a voracious reader and thinker. And I remember just going into the city a couple of days ago into New York City and just dropping off that book for him. And so for me, there's just like this constant conversation with books where you're figuring out how to live and then you're sharing books that are beautiful with friends or people they could, that you think it could help. And then I'm constantly being sent books back by other people. And it, it's just this beautiful thing. And so there's something kind of impractical about it. And at the same time, it turns out to be deeply practical because you read one of these great books and it totally changes the way you view the world. So, you know, you read a book by Montaigne and, and you remember something about the arbitrariness of our views, right? The arbitrariness of, you know, he'll talk about the values of one culture versus the values of another culture. And then you start to think, oh, well, this sort of connects to everything that we're learning about our behavioral biases. And so it just broadens your mind or you start reading great literature and you realize, everybody is viewing things from a totally different perspective. And so if I don't broaden my mind and view things from multiple perspectives, how can I possibly hope to get at 
you know, in inverted commas, the truth. And so, so this stuff that in some ways is madly impractical, reading so many books from so many different areas and trying to figure out how to live, but in some ways it's deeply practical. And, and it gets back to something that Bill Miller had said to me once where I think he may have said this on one of the two podcast episodes that I've done with him. He talked about how when he was a young investor, this guy from Merrill Lynch, I think it was Bob Farrell, who's a strategist at Merrill Lynch, talked to all of these young money managers and analysts and said, you're reading exactly the same thing. You're all reading the Wall Street Journal and, and the New York Times and the Financial Times. And how can you possibly think differently from each other when you're all just getting the same inputs? And so I think it's really interesting when you look at the, the really smart, re- really gifted, really interesting, idiosyncratic money managers at the absolute top of their game. They're all kind of polymathic readers, pretty much, with a, with a few exceptions. I mean, I, I think that's interesting that you know, Nick Sleep is reading this enormous book, The Power Broker by Caro. I think it's interesting that Bill Miller is recommending you know, when we cease to understand the world and is studying chaos theory and complex systems and stuff at the Santa Fe Institute. But one of the few really renowned investors that I've met and interviewed who wasn't like that was probably Mario Gabelli, who I remember saying to me very proudly that he never read novels. And I remember Peter Lynch once telling me many years ago that it was much more helpful to play games like, like Bridge and poker, which taught you about probabilities than it was to read all of the books on investing. But in some weird way, I mean, it's not a coincidence that I never got really that interested in either Peter Lynch or Mario Gabelli because they were really great money makers. But it was like, I don't know, I'm much more interested in the people who are polymathic readers who are figuring out these connections between investing, business, and life. Because as Munger says, Munger often quotes this line, it's all one damn relatedness after another. And so that's the beauty of it is that you find these damn relatednesses between the novel that you read, the nonfiction book that you read, and then the annual report that you read. And then you're like, oh, that's what quality is. Or, oh, that's, that's what compounding is. Or, or that's how to reduce risk. I like that you say that, William, and also that you let serendipity happen. One thing that I do in my very intricate note system that I don't know if, it, if I should even tell about later, but you know, oh, no, you definitely have to because 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 you'll actually have figured out a good way to do this. Right? Mine will be <laughs> haphazard. Yeah. So, so well, thank you for for saying that, William. So one of the things that I do is that I typically order new books whenever I am reading the last new book that I'm currently going through, and it forces me to have some time to reread books and. I don't really know where I got that inspiration from, but it's to, because I'm not a very spiritual person, I, I tend to be way too logical in the way I approach everything in life. And so I would go to, I have different bookshelves in my condo, and I would, I would sort of like see which book would call to me for whatever reason. And well, in that case, I would then start from cover to cover to go through my notes, but at least I would, I would see which book that sort of like speaks to me. So, but anyways, I also want to say, you know, on that note of serendipity, or serendipity, you know, there's this old Chinese proverb that says, uh, when the student is ready, the master appears. And I find that to be so true whenever it comes to reading books. Ten years-ish ago, I was in a bad place in my life, and I remember reading Brian Tracy's book, Change Your Thinking, Change Your Life. And it changed so many things in my life. And 
So because I just felt that book was so wonderful, a, a few years later, I went back and reread it. And I was like, this is not a great book. <laughs> you know, there, there are different things I now strongly disagree with. And it came not to go too much into detail with that book. But my point of telling that story was just that I needed to change my thinking at the time to change my life. And then some of his advice may or may not be good, but I just I needed to get into that mindset. Whereas before, I kind of felt a pain of self into a corner in different situations in my life. And so, you know, I could say the same thing about reading Mike Gregor's book, How Not to Die, which is a, a book I know that, that you read. And, uh, big. Not the whole. If not, I, I went, <laughs> of I course. Went, it's like how to avoid diabetes, how, right. how not to die of diabetes, right. or how not to die of heart attack. And I read those bits, but, but I by no means read the whole thing. I grazed. Right, <laughs> exactly. And of course, you, you know me, William, I, I've read it cover to cover quite a few times, even for all the, the diseases. I wouldn't even like genetically be able to get it. I'm pretty sure I probably still read it, just, just to be sure I got, got all of it. And there was something about it. And, um, so the book is about diet and actually changed my diet after reading that and has been very helpful in many different ways, both for my wife and for myself. But and then recently, because I can't remember which episode that was in, but it, it might have been the one you did with Jason Carp. I'm not completely sure, but you talked at the end about books about diet. And one of them was uh, mm-hmm. How Not to Die. Uh, another one yeah. was, I want to say it was Forever Young, or at least I, I sent you an email saying, oh, this was wonderful. Yeah, and Undo It, that had a big impact on me. I did read Undo It from cover to cover, which is this Dean Ornish book. And I actually, at one point, I tried bribing my children. I said to them, I'll pay $150 each if you read this book. And neither of them took me off on the offer. They all sort of more or less say the same thing, the longevity diet as well by Valter Longo. But I think, I think they're really helpful in giving you at least a sense. They're sort of all directionally correct, I think. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. 
That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. And sort of like to hit that point before home would be to say, I didn't feel that Forever Young changed my life the same way as How Not to Die. But I think it was because of the time it came into my life. Like what you're saying before, it was more or less the same thing. And so I already lived that way. Whereas whenever I read How Not to Die, you know, my doctor was not happy and now my doctor is happy. And so it's just one of those things where you need to let serendipity happen. It's not always, I don't know if you experienced the same thing, William, but you have this one person who's telling you, oh my God, you have to read this book. It changed my life. And you read it and you're like, how? (laughs) And that was one of the things. And I also just should mention that I don't know how it comes across whenever we talk about How Not to Die Forever Young. It's probably because it's a more catchy book title. The, the proper book title should probably be How to Live a Longer Life with a Good Health Span and Not Get Sick as Much. It just doesn't sell as well. So the other, the other titles just sounds a lot better. It's not because William and I into any kind of futuristic, we never die kind of thing. Or I don't know, I, I won't speak for you here, William, but that was not the intention of what I was just saying. Uh, yeah, but I do think it's a great title, How Not to Die. You know, because I'm a, I, you know, look, I, I edited the Asian, European, Middle East, and African editions of Time magazine, and I spent many years working for magazines. And so I'm also a great admirer just of the craft of words, of how titles are written, how things are packaged. When I see something like that, I'm like, oh, that's good. They figured something out. So I'm, I'm also not just reading these things for, you know, practical guidance on you know, how to be more successful or anything like that. There's also sheer joy, the beauty of the language, the way it's packaged, the cleverness of it. The, I mean, I, I bought both of my kids this um, book by Rick Rubin recently, the, the famous music producer. And it's just a really exquisitely designed book. And it's, it's designed by Pentagram, which is the same firm that designed The Great Minds of Investing, the book that I did with Michael O'Brien years ago. And I just really appreciate these things. When a title is good or a design is good, like if you look at that Rick Rubin cover, it's just really beautifully done. And he apparently made all of, all of the creative choices. Like they, they gave him choices, but then he made the decisions. And so there is something just beautiful about the craft of books, the feel of a good book. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, there's a wonderful line from the poet Keats where he said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. And so when, when things are beautifully written or beautifully packaged or the cover is beautiful, it's just a delight. So, I mean, there is a tendency for a lot of people in our audience, they're going to be so practical 
that they're just like, yeah, how do I get better? How do I get smarter? How do I, you know? And I totally appreciate that. But there is also just this sheer joy of these beautiful writers, beautiful books, beautiful stories. And I don't know, I, I hope people don't forget that part of it, that there's, there's got to be joy in this journey of learning as well. It's not all practical. And so even though there is a sort of practical benefit to reading a lot of these things, there's also just, it's a delight. I mean, you know, this book group that I have, we met last night and we go, we only read great fiction. And last night for once, we went to a restaurant, usually it's in someone's house. And so you're eating great Thai food with a bunch of really smart people who are good friends talking about great literature. That is an incredible joy. That is just, that's a really central aspect of a life well lived for me. And part of what you're doing is you're forcing yourself to focus on some of the greatest things that have been created by mankind. That's a, an inherently beautiful thing. And so as we're kind of trying to construct a, a richer, wiser, happier life, we shouldn't forget the actual joy of the journey. And I think people like you and me, Stig, we've been so hell-bent on trying to become you know, more successful, better. There's sometimes too much guilt and we forget the actual joy of the journey. Yeah, the, the best part is the journey. That is so true. And the best books are those who put you in a state of flow. And I would like to talk a bit about flow because it's, it's something that I, would, I experience whenever I read books. And I don't think necessarily everyone, uh, even though there is a selection probably in the audience who also feel a state of flow whenever they read books, it could be whenever they're exercising or whatever they fancy. And so the state of flow, and I'm just going to quote this because it was way better written than I ever could. Experience of being so absorbed by an engaging, enjoyable task that your attention is completely held by it, end quote. And I hope you'll forgive me, William, whenever I'm giving a plug for your book, Rich and Wise and Happier, which I'm sure a lot of people in the audience, if not all of them, are familiar with, because that book put me in a state of flow. I would even say from time to time, I wasn't only one decimal point knew how far I was into the book because I sort of like, you know, you know, whenever they talk about page turners, it was one of those, one of those books because you don't. You don't think too much about where you are and just really get absorbed. And if you don't know the book without going too much into detail, it's about richer, wiser, and happier, which is just the intersection of what really fascinates me. And you know, for you, it might be football or you know, any kind of other activity. But that's sort of like, regardless of your walk of life, if going into that state of flow and searching for that state of flow is a part of my quest now. And I, I do a lot of that through, through reading. I should also say that if you're interested in learning more about the state of flow, Steve Cottle has this book, The Art of the Impossible, which ironically did not put me in the state of flow, but I had to finish it because I started on the book. But he talks a lot about how to get into that state of flow. And once you try it, I would imagine close to everyone have tried it at least once, if not multiple times in their life. You want to go there again. So if you want to have a more intellectual approach to how to find that state of flow, if you don't know it already, I would recommend The Art of the Impossible. Yeah, he's a very smart guy. I've spoken to him a couple of times. He's just a really smart guy. He's done some books with Peter Diamandis as well, who I'm friendly with. And yeah, he's a very good writer and very good thinker. Yeah, what, what's the one he did with it? Was it Bold he did with Diamandis? I think he did Bold. I think he may have done Abundance as well. Abundance, he's, yeah, he's great books. Bunch. Yeah, I, I do. I, or over the years, I've done quite a lot of ghostwriting with famous people. And sometimes, sometimes it's kind of concealed and sometimes it's evident what you've done because they're open about it. And there was one project where I was trying to get Stephen to work on the project with me. And I think he was interesting. He was like, he, he'll only do it 
if his name is on the cover. And so Peter Diamandis is a very smart guy and is happy to share billing with Stephen Kotler, who's, uh, who's also a very smart guy. Whereas, I, you know, I, w- I was willing to sort of conceal my role in various books that I did with other people. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing, William. He's a great writer. And I, I think yeah. that, that is, uh, I might be mixing those three books, but I want to say that The Art of the Possible is where he talks about he wants to be the best writer in the world. And I, I might be misquoting this. And then he also talks about AI. And so I'm curious, I know I'm going completely off tangent, but that's, that's why we have these conversations, William. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's a good writer though. He is. He a, he's he's a, a wonderful writer. writer. And you know, you have all of these, I don't know how much you, you've been plugged into that, but you have all these publishing houses that say they don't accept any new scripts because everything is written by AI. And of course, all of that is in the early stages. And I, I read your book, say, Richard Wise Happy, and I think, how can AI write something like that? And then I think about what if AI wrote, what if they was trained on all the best books in the world, probably cross-references with different type of reviews and whatever kind of thing people really liked, or it could probably track how people got into a state of flow, whatever. I don't really understand everything with AI. How do you as an author look into this whole thing about AI writing books? I'm intrigued by it. I've been listening to a lot of these discussions of AI. I, I was listening to one with David Remnick yesterday, the editor of The New Yorker, and he was talking with the founder of ChatGPT or the co-founder. And, and he was saying, look, I got ChatGPT to write in the style of David Remnick than, you know, himself. And he's like, it doesn't look very good. It looks kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's not very elegantly done. It's just, just like sort of weird summaries in my language. And I don't know, there's some, there's some, there's definitely potential for, you know, it's extraordinary what's going on. It's going to get better and better. I have this perhaps naive view and I'm way out of my depth on anything to do with technology, but I have this naive view that you feel whether something has soul in it, whether there's, as I would put it, blood on the page. And I think one reason why people connected to Richard Weiser Happier, and, and thank you for your very kind words about it, is because I suffered to write it. It took me five years where I was really trying to figure out how to live and how to invest and how, you know, how to learn from my mistakes and my failures and what I needed to learn from the smartest people I'd ever met, whether it was a Bill Miller or a Charlie Munger or a Howard Marks or Joe Greenblatt or an Ed Thorpe. And I think you can feel whether there's blood on the page, whether there's heart and soul in it. And I'm not convinced that, and I, I, again, I'm way out of my depth in saying this, but I'm not convinced that this is what we're going to get out of AI, at least for a long time. And so my bet in my own life is, um, is to go for quality and go for you know, to try to do things that are of deep value. I think in a world where more and more is just pumped out, where there's a lot of content, a lot of things where people are just producing content and filling time slots and space and pages that are allotted. I think that stuff is very, very vulnerable because, you know, it's like, it's like factory output. And, but the stuff that really has soul how do you replace that? I mean, I, I, I read this novel over the weekend, this Japanese novel called Bochan, which was published in like 1906. And I think the guy wrote it in about 12 days, apparently. I mean, it's crazy. 
It's 140 pages. And it's kind of a beautiful novel. And it's strange and it's funny and it's brilliant. And it doesn't entirely cohere. It's a little bit all over the place, but it's just like this tour de force, just a brilliant piece of writing. And it's got a great voice, at least in the translation that I read. And that's inimitable. And part of why it's inimitable is that he's from this samurai family that's kind of fallen on hard times and his parents had him by accident and he was the sixth child when his mom was 40 and his dad was like 53, this back in 1906, and they gave him away. And so he was sort of raised by this childless couple because his parents didn't want him. And the book is infused with that sense of melancholy and longing because it's written by a guy who was given away. And then he was handed back to his parents because I guess that couple didn't want him anymore. And then a couple of his siblings died of tuberculosis. And there's this sort of, there's, so there's this human tragedy there that shaped the way he's writing about relationships. And I don't see that a machine can get the beauty and the melancholy. And do you see what I mean? Like that's, there's soul in that. Yeah, I see exactly what you mean. And I hope you're right. I think about this and I can't help but be a bit of practical, which is probably uh, just how I'm wired. Thank God one of us is, Dick. And thinking, what would that mean for the landscape of business? And you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, remember, I remember having a discussion with Preston a long time ago about social media and like Preston is like a wizard on social media and I'm, I'm not even there. Yeah. <laughs> or at least I, I don't really post a, lot, a, a bunch of stuff. I, kind of feel a bit toxic from time to time. But anyways, I remember speaking with Preston and going into this discussion of, of the whole thing about being sustainable and we need to like build the brand of TAP and we need to call the account something with a company name. And Preston was just saying, people do not connect with brands. People connect with other people. Mm. And I think that there's something to that. And that I'm sure like a great publisher probably also know that and, and would know if they publish something, they probably spin a story around it and not say it's produced by AI. But there's something about reading your book, William, and say, now I'm going to watch a video or listen to a podcast by William. And he's going to talk about how much he bled. And I also think that there will be, a, from a demand side, there'll probably be a, aside from a few who, is, who would be curious and say, oh, it's amazing, it's written by AI. Quite a few would, would probably feel this fear of being replaced one way or the other and feel, I can, I can resonate with the idea of reading Richard Wise a Happier, connecting with William, whether it's on social media or on a, on a deeper level or whatever it is. And that's, I don't know how you can replace that. And then at the same time, I'm looking at something like Meta. I know how that company has been manipulating people's emotions because they can track people's emotions. And, you know, I, I read this article about how whenever you scroll down in, in your feed, it's the same thing as slots machines would do in the casino because it gives you another kind of dopamine release. And so it's not exactly what we're talking about, but it's, but it's not the opposite either because they can track your emotions, figure out how you react to it. And so perhaps, no, right now, AI can't have this cannot give you the same sense of grief, sorrow that this Japanese author you're referring to uh, can do, but perhaps it can tell you what makes you turn the next page. 
especially if yeah. it's not a physical book, if it's something you're reading on your Kindle and it can track what is it that gets you going and it can pump out these emotions. And it can stoke your desire for stuff. I think one thing that social media has been brilliant at is getting you to say, wouldn't you like this pair of trousers too? I mean, I, th I think technology is brilliant at manipulating us. You know, look, there was a great panel at the TED conference in Vancouver. This is where I went, where I was sitting next to Monish for part of the conference. And one of the opening panels was with all of these people, like the co-founder of ChatGPT. And they're all talking about, you know, how AI is going to change the world. And there's just a part of me that thinks when we look at what the tech companies, the, these tech giants have done to manipulate us, whether it's Meta or Twitter or whatever it might be, I just think you have to know that the profit incentive is so powerful that they're not going to look out for our best interests. Like there's, there's no way that companies on, I, I don't feel like capitalism is inherently evil or bad or inherently good. I mean, I think it's an amazing thing, but I think it, it has both polarities, right? And Munger always says, really focus attention on the incentives and all things being equal, always focus on the incentives. That's, that will tell you how people behave. And so my fear with the AI stuff is like, well, we've seen that the companies that dominate social media are not looking out for our best interests. Why would we assume that they'll look out for our best interests with AI? And, and so I'm not trusting of where this is going to go. But at the same time, there's this personal bet that I'm making, which may be just born out of denial, which is that I think, I think people are yearning for human connection. They're yearning for honesty. They're yearning for integrity. They're, they're yearning for quality in general. And I think you, you, you hear it when you listen to a podcast, right? You can hear whether the person bothered to prepare and is truly interested and is truly curious in the person they're interviewing, or if they're just mailing it in because they're trying to build their brand. And, you know, there, there are, uh, I, I think it's the same when you read magazine articles, you can tell when there's, there's deep work being done, when books are written. I mean, you can see there are extraordinary people who can just pump out a book a year or every two years or whatever. And good luck to them. I, I wish I were one of them. But look, I, I mean, one, one of the people in my book group is John Gertner, who's one of the best writers I, I've ever met, who wrote books like The Idea Factory, about creativity at Bell Labs, and The, Ice, the End of the World, about exploration. And, you know, he's working on a book, and he's, uh, he's like, yeah, it'll probably take me five years, seven years. And then another member of the book group is this guy, Ramin Barani, who's an incredible filmmaker and got nominated for an Oscar for his screenplay of The White Tiger, which is a great book written by another friend and former colleague, Aravinda Diga. And Ramin is just like such a serious artist. I just don't think people like that can be replaced. They're so passionate about their work and the quality of the work. And when you see real quality, you can smell it. And when you, uh, yes, we're manipulable by technology. We really are. We can be very easily exploited. But I, I think there's always, there's always a taste for, for quality. There's always room in the marketplace for that, for quality and depth. And I, I, I just, I, you know, I sort of feel like for our listeners, like you kind of have to decide like what kind of life do you want to lead? Like, is it, a, is it shallow 
and kind of panicky and just moving fast and full of dopamine hits? Or is it like a little slower, a little more thoughtful, a little deeper? I don't know. That's my bet is that a lot of us are yearning for that. I think you mentioned this quote to me a few times from someone you interviewed that quality has its own vibration. Yeah, Yen Liao, who's a brilliant, a brilliant mind, who, who's been a very successful investor, but he also just is hugely articulate. Yeah, and it, it stopped me in my tracks. I remember going out for a lunch with him in, in Rye, New York once, and I was talking about something, and he said, well, William, quality has its own vibration. And it, it was like one of, one of those moments where you're like, oh, that's a deep insight. Yeah. Well, no, he said quality has its own frequency. That was the exact phrase. Quality has its own frequency. You might not be able to tell how, but you can just sense it. You can just sense it in the way that you express yourself. There, there's just something there. Like if you read the transcript, perhaps you couldn't, but <laughs> if you listen to it, you can. And if you read a book that a brilliant writer took five years to write, it's very, very hard to copy, at least, at least yet. Well, I, I talked about this whole issue of quality in Omaha when I, I, I went to Guy Spears' ValueX meeting, which was, I, I guess it was probably the day before the Berkshire Hathaway annual general meeting. And there were, you know, 250, 300 people went to this conference that Guy was hosting. And, and I was talking precisely about this question of quality, because if you think of people like Nick Sleep, who we talked about before, Nick and his partner, Zach, who I wrote about in my book, their whole approach to investing was built around this concept of quality. So it sounds kind of esoteric and beside the point, but they actually, that became their guiding principle for everything that they did with Nomad, which beat the market by, you know, 800 and something percentage points over, I think, 14 years. And they got the idea from Robert Persick, right? Who was this very eccentric, brilliant philosopher slash novelist who wrote the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And one of the things that Persig talked about was that, you know, whether you're mending a motorcycle or you're, you're mending a dress or you're sharpening a knife or anything else, there's a beautiful way to do it and there's an ugly way to do it. And as I was saying at that, at that conference, at Guy's conference, one of the quotes that I love from Persig is where he says, the question to ask yourself is whether you're growing towards quality or falling away from quality. And that, that became a defining question for people like Nick Sleep and Case Sakaria when they were running Nomad because it simplifies these questions of how am I going to deal with my partners, for example? Like, am I going to try to overcharge so I can gouge them? Am I going to try to raise as many assets as possible because then I can get immensely rich? Or am I going to behave in a way where... I favor my partners over myself. And once they started to apply this filter of quality, it became incredibly clarifying. And so they would do things like they would say, they got to $100 million in assets. And they said, all right, let's, let's close to new investors for a while because we can't find any good opportunities. And then they got eventually to something like $3.5 billion in assets. And then they were like, let's just return the money and we'll send back all the money and we'll focus the second half of our lives on giving back money to society in a way that creates the maximum enduring good for society. So this whole question of quality 
becomes really a defining issue in life. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I got given a book on quality. It's literally called On Quality. It's on my desk here, actually. It's by Robert Persig. It's after he died, his wife put it together. And it's called On Quality, An Inquiry into Excellence. And it's got excerpts from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Lila, his final novel, and also from various letters of his, all about this question of what he called the metaphysics of quality, how to lead a quality life, which infuses everything. And I organized a, a, a Zoom call several months ago with a bunch of really renowned investors where we just talked about that book. And so these were people you'd, you'd have heard of. And so it's really interesting that this thing that sounds kind of esoteric actually is of real interest to people managing, you know, tens of billions of dollars. So this is a beautiful example of thematic interconnectedness, right? You take an idea from this sort of weird memoir come novel, come philosophy tract by Robert Persig about the metaphysics of quality. And it actually changes the way you manage your money. It changes the way you write books. It changes the way you deal with your partner changes the way you deal with your clients because you're suddenly thinking, well, so what's the quality decision here? What's the quality move? I think it affects the way we do the podcast, doesn't it? It does. And in so many ways, let me give you one example. And one of the things I'm struggling with right now, one thing that's very tempting right now is to have programmatic ads on the podcast. It's tempting, but it's also the opposite. And if you're like thinking, what's programmatic ads? It's more similar to like Google AdSense, if people are familiar with that. So if you were in a certain demographic, you will get and in a certain geographic area too, you'll be giving uh, different ads. So William and I would be served different ads. And so that is the direction where the industry is going. There seems to be a secular uh, shift away from doing conventional host rate ads about, let's say, we endorse uh, Audible and then you know they sign up for X amount of dollars. And then that's sort of like been the traditional business model. I've been asked, I don't know how many times from members on the team, but also from, from others, like, should we do programmatic ads? And we're leaving hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table and probably more, even more, like depending on how long you go out, it could be significantly more than that. And so I just really, I can't stand the thought of advertising for McDonald's on my podcast. I just, I just can't. And I don't know if you have any kind of affinity for McDonald's. So I'm, I'm it, like, it could be any other brand. I'm vegetarian. I, I'm not big on, <laughs> on eating Big Macs anymore. Although I know they have some ultra healthy vegetarian food as well. Right. And it, it's not just the brands because we can always discuss whether or not a brand is good or bad, but it's also just the way yeah. that the ads are being served. You know, it's going to sound a bit more like your a local radio station. And so I just have a really hard time wrapping myself around it. Would I eventually succumb to that? In a way, I would like to say I have quote unquote so much integrity that I don't want to have that type of ads on, on the feed. But you know, what if, not to fear monger for anyone listening, tuning into this from the team, but what if the decision is we run a huge deficit and if we don't have terrible ads on, everyone will lose their jobs. What do we think about it then? And it's difficult. And I should also say it's, it's not the situation right now, but I can't help but let my mind wander. So that's a beautiful application, Stig, of this whole principle of quality that seems, seems kind of nebulous and vague. And then you think, of, you think of Munga saying, take a good idea and take it seriously. So when you come across one of these ideas, a simple principle, like deciding, saying to yourself, am I growing towards quality or falling away from quality? 
if you apply Munger's idea of taking a good idea and taking it seriously, that infuses every area of your life. And so this is one of those things where I think this is a defense of why it's worth reading broadly, because you never know where you're going to come up with an idea like that. And so because Nick Sleep happened to be a failed landscape architect when he first left Edinburgh University, didn't really intend to be a legendary hedge fund manager. He was just reading really broadly. He was a geographer at college, and geography happens to be an incredibly broad discipline. And so he was able to read stuff like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the conversation, here he is reading a 1300 page book by Robert Caro, one of the greatest biographers of all time, about Robert Moses, who was the power broker who sort of built New York. And that's, that's really interesting that one of the great hedge fund managers of our time is just roving through the world, reading books like this and thinking about business models, thinking about what works in business, thinking about what lasts. And I, I don't know, I think the fact that we're discussing seriously a practical question, like what type of ads the podcast should have or how to defend our careers against the encroachment of AI, and that we're drawing on ideas that Robert Persig, who's no longer even alive, was discussing. That's a very beautiful defense of why it's worth reading broadly. But then as Munger often says, you know, look, you don't need your proctologist to be reading Proust, and maybe it's better if he isn't reading Proust. And so I, I think there's a tension here, and you have to kind of decide when you're deciding on what books to read, what game am I playing here? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. 
As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I love that you say that. Which journey are you on, William? And I want to take this opportunity to Play this clip from an episode you did. It was back on episode 26 with Jason Karp. And wonderful, wonderful clip. Let's just uh, let's play now and, and we can talk about it a bit later. So on the surface, this is a story of enviable success. But underneath this, there's a sort of more dramatic story of you kind of crashing and burning personally. And I, I wondered if you could take us through that story in some detail, telling us what actually happened to you and what the price in a way of this hyperneurotic overachiever mindset was in terms of your body and mind. Yeah. And I didn't fully know why it was happening at the time. I think with the benefit of time and hindsight, it looks a lot clearer in terms of what happened to me and and how I did to myself what I did. But I was, you know, I was hell bent on this continued path of overachievement. I got this very coveted job right out of college. I wanted to be great at it, you know, and I, I obviously wanted to make a lot of money, but I also wanted I wanted the accolades. I wanted to feel impressive. I wanted to quiet all those insecure imposter demons and I was very good at my job. And um, in the second, third year of working, I think it first started about a year into it. I had continued to evolve my own different forms of efficiency hacking. And this is before like podcasts and before, you know, four hour work week was out and all these things. I was really obsessed with how do I improve my efficiencies? And it wasn't just for business. I was so curious and so interested in knowledge acquisition. And I had sort of delusions of, of my own grandeur at the time because I had been so... Everything I put my mind to in college, I did. I sort of thought, oh, sky's the limit. Let's keep going. And I taught myself how to speed read. I taught myself how to go on less sleep. And I started taking a very myopic approach to productivity and efficiency. And if it didn't fit into my rubric of, is this going to make me more productive or better? 
it didn't fit into my life. And over, you know, in college, primarily because like I had an athletic schedule, I, I was working out, you know, an hour and a half to three hours a day. And I didn't realize how beneficial that was for me, both mental health and physical health. And then I get into this, this kind of work hard, play hard environment, New York City, 1998, 1999, 21, 22 years old. And everyone's like, you know, caffeine in the morning, crappy lunch, you know, work till nine o'clock at night, go out for cocktails, get five hours of sleep back again. And I started doing that. And then I realized, well, wait, like a lot of this is not helping my productivity. So I'm going to teach myself how to sleep less. I'm going to basically stop hanging out with people because hanging out with people didn't have a tangible benefit for me. I'm going to teach myself how to speed read. And so I started reading. I got so fast at one point I was reading a book a day and that was outside of work. And I gave up exercise because I didn't see how that fit into my goals. And for a couple months, it was working if your objective function was like, get more productive. And I kind of felt like it was just around the time that Goodwill Hunting had come out. And I was like obsessed with that movie. And I kind of felt like maybe, maybe I could be like him. And which obviously is a, is a fictional character. And I always had these, you may or may not remember, I have a mathematician uncle who was a child prodigy and was kind of like Goodwill Hunting, you know, and, and graduated high school and college three or four years early and, you know, just went on to do crazy things in the mathematics world. And I always kind of looked up to him and wondered, like, you know, was I anything like him? Could I be like him? And so I had that kind of fueling me. And then I noticed that I started getting sick. And it started with some weird symptoms. And I started developing these rashes on my body. I noticed my hair started falling out in like clumps. And then what was really acute was my vision started to go. And I remember one day walking out of my apartment. And at this point, by the way, I was sleeping three, four hours a night tops. And not because I was having fun because I was like, I was neurotically reading things and doing things. And I was teaching myself how to do these like 10 minute military style power naps and all for like acquisition of knowledge and productivity. And um, I noticed walking out in my hallway at like six in the morning that the lights had like kind of double. And I noticed I was having a hard time reading and I ended up going to see a few doctors and I was diagnosed with degenerative eye disease that has no cure and has just sort of like a rate of acceleration that you can maybe control. But they basically said I would be fully blind by the age of 30 and I was going blind and I had to put my name on a corneal transplant list. And while this was happening, I had all my other health symptoms, the hair, the rashes, I had a few other things that are probably not worth going into, but I felt awful. And yet in what I thought mattered, I just kept bringing up more points at work. Okay. So William, I have to say this was one of the most impactful episodes you did. And I, you know, I could, I could play the entire episode now. That would probably be, <laughs> be a bit too much, but uh, I, I just get more coffee. Right. right exactly. <laughs> but uh, that call it five, six minutes or whatever it was, it was, I really resonate with that. And I think a lot of our listeners would resonate with that too. There are so many of our listeners that are top performers in the field. And it's very clear whenever you meet, meet the audience that they're also very competitive. And if anyone is competitive, it's, it's Jason Carb, especially the period of his time that he's talking about here. And so I can speak for myself here and say that even though I probably haven't had the same symptoms, I had had some of them. 
because I've, I've been very competitive. I, I try not to be, but it's, it's just wired into who I am. If anyone else is wired the same way that I am, and perhaps most people are somewhere in between where we are, see if you can perhaps strike a more healthy, healthy balance. I, um, I also could play another clip which I won't, where I talk about, where I talk with Guy Spear about giving yourself permission to not become smarter about investing or whatever it is that you really want to be an expert in. And it might seem, it might seem like a ridiculous conversation to have unless you are very competitive and understand what it takes to be very good at what you do. Well, Guy, a few years ago, I remember when I think to Antarctica with his wife, Laurie, and their, their three kids. And he read War and Peace while he was there by Tolstoy, which is a big behemoth of a book. On the one hand, as someone who's been invested in Guy's Fund for like 22 years, there's a part of me that's like, what the hell? He's, he's off in Antarctica reading Tolstoy when he should be managing my money. And then on the other hand, I'm kind of like, well, that probably makes him more resilient because you know, he needs to invest time and energy in his family. He really needs a good marriage. He needs to have a good relationship with his kids. He really loves his family. And you know, he needs some time off. And maybe that's a really valuable thing for him to do in terms of having a sustainable life. And I'm not sure. I suspect there's a price to pay in terms of returns by not being really narrowly focused and really intensely driven just about money. And you think of someone like Peter Lynch, who I think, you know, didn't take a holiday basically in like 13 or 14 years that he was at the top of his game as a fund manager at Fidelity. Uh, and I think the one time he went away, the market kind of fell apart and it was like he couldn't stop work for a second. But he quit after 13 or 14 years and his career as a money manager was done. And so on the one hand, you know, he had this kind of lightning pace and this intensity and on the other hand, it wasn't resilient. It, it, you know, he couldn't keep doing it. And you think also of Jason Karp, right? Who I, I remember when I first interviewed Jason Karp for Richard Wiser Happier, I just liked him tremendously immediately. I mean, he's such a smart, honest, thoughtful human being, super articulate, super self-aware. But I said to him, it seems like you've set yourself up to be an extreme athlete. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as extreme athletes. And so he was you know, he had a meditation room in his office. He had, uh, you know, with blackout curtains, he wouldn't allow certain food in the office. They had like healthy snacks. He was exercising like crazy, he had a gym there. They had, you know, everyone had their own locker and stuff. And so he was approaching it in this really smart way as an extreme athlete, digesting all of this information faster and quicker and trading quickly. But it wasn't really sustainable. And I think part of what's happened with Jason's career is he shifted to being much more, much more like Buffett, where he's got a platform company now, a holding company, where he's, where he's building businesses in the space of, of health and nutrition and nurturing them over many years. It's a much healthier approach to life, whereas before he was just trading pieces of paper. And he said he started to feel like his soul was just decaying. And that he, he was kind of adding no value in life. And so I think, again, you have to kind of figure out, like, what, what game am I playing? What game am I built for? Part of the problem for Jason was that he was like an extreme athlete. He could win that game, 
but it came at a tremendous personal cost. And it, at a certain point, he started to feel like he was wrecking his health, his physical health, his mental health, his equanimity, and that there was no real meaning to it, no real soul to it. And he switched to, to something that's much more aligned with who he is, which is you know, building these businesses that are going to improve the way people eat. So think with all of this stuff, whether you're picking how to invest, whether you're picking how to do business, whether you're picking how to read, you want to do it in a way that's somehow aligned with your personality and your strengths. I was going for a walk with my wife, which we luckily often do. And at the time, I remember we were eighth in the world in business podcasts. And my wife, who is way more, not just smarter than I am, but also lives a more balanced life than I am. She was really proud of her husband, like, oh my God, like eighth in the world. And I looked at her and said, but there were seven who are better than me. And then, so I, I, not, not in any way to put myself along uh, the likes of Jason Cobb. That's not the point of, of me saying this, but my point is saying that if you want to play that game, you cannot win. Because if you read a book like Jason did, you are just competing with other people who also read a book a day. It doesn't really matter if they're... 99.99% who are not, because that's not who you're competing with. If you're the second best in the world in tennis, you focus on the one that's better than you. That's the nature of things. And just be very, I guess this is my way of saying that it really just hit me between the eyes whenever I read that. Sorry, whenever I listened to that episode you did with Jason, because I feel that there's so many in our audience who can resonate with that and being so obsessed, for lack of better words, about what they do and really want to excel at it, not giving themselves permission to enjoy some of the finer things in life. I think you have to ask yourself what constitutes a really successful life for you, a truly successful, truly abundant life for you. And I think some of us are so competitive by nature and we're so desperate to get ahead and, and this sort of survival mode that's deeply wired into us, maybe even more so as men, I don't know. I mean, there's this sort of this hunger to prove ourselves and to prove that uh, we're, we're somehow desirable and powerful and macho and stuff. I think it's very easy for that to get out of control. And so to be able to pause and step back and say, what am I optimizing for here? Like, why am I reading? Why am I working so hard? And I don't know, I think about this a lot, right? Because you can, you can imagine how much time I've spent even just reading the novels with my book group. I mean, we read Life and Fate, which was one of Jason Zweig's favorite novels, right? Which is by this great Russian novelist, Vasily Grossman. I think it's like an 800-page book. We read Anna Karenina by Tolstoy, 800-page book. You know, we read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. That's a big time suck, reading that stuff. And we're all busy and, you know, we all have like books being published and things like that. And, you know, I sometimes think like, why am I doing this? Like, why? Isn't it just a distraction? And I'm terrible at organizing things. And I'm the person who kind of ends up organizing a lot of this stuff, which so doesn't play to my strengths. And so it's even more of a time suck for me. And then I prepare like crazy for some of the meetings because I'm sort of moderating stuff sometimes. And so I, you know, I spend the weekend partly studying this Japanese novel so that I could then kind of moderate a decent conversation about it. And then I'm thinking, well, no, part of what I'm optimizing for in terms of a successful, happy and abundant life is to be chatting with people I like tremendously who are really thoughtful about great books and we're learning stuff. And that for me is part of an abundant life. And, and so that's not a digression, but there have been so many times where I feel that tension. I'm like, should we just pack this in? Is it just too much? 
And then every time we're like, you know, like last night, we we're like, so what's our next book? And we're like, why don't we just read the first two books of In Search of Lost Time by Proust, which I, I've sort of, I've come close to finishing the whole book and never quite managed to because it's like 4,000 pages. And so maybe this will be the last attempt. But it's like, that is part of a rich life for me. And I, I think this is something that Jason Carper's done as well, is he's decided, no, no, part of a rich life for me is to be in Austin, Texas, not in the heart of Manhattan in a skyscraper. So I have a little bit of a quieter life and I spend a little bit more time with my kids. And I just think this is a hugely important question for our our listeners to ask themselves is, what am I optimizing for here? William, on that note, let's go to the third segment here. You know, I'm desperately trying to keep some sort of structure here on our conversation. And luckily, it's not too easy. And that's the way that it should be. I'm testing your ability to keep track. No, no, no. I, I, I love how much we, we deviate from the, uh, from the outline. You know, I have all these bullet points and notes and like, then we have to go this direction. And then we always end another place, which I, which I really enjoy. This feels like it's, uh, it's time off whenever I speak with you. And, and I had the outline and I lost it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so between home and my office, I was like, oh no, it's on the other computer. So this is a pretty good reflection of our different personalities. Yeah. So the third segment here for today is how to encourage reading. If it didn't come across that way because William and I are so intense about a reading, we absolutely love reading and we would like to, to give that back one way or the other. And it's, it's something I thought a lot about. And then I listened to one of the podcasts you did. It was not here in, in our feed, it was on another podcast. And you talked about how you had given your, your children unlimited book budgets whenever they grew up. And inspired by you, I give the same privilege to my nieces. So they're, they're eight and 10. So we haven't really gotten around to, you know, security analysis, second volume, whatnot. We, uh, we are doing Harry Potter now. Charles right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll just uh, wait a day or two, but we are, we are reading Harry Potter now. And, but I, I, I wanted to, to turn the tables here and ask you, William, how have you encouraged your children to read whenever they were kids? Well, my son Henry is now 25 and he got a creative writing and English literature degree from Columbia and now is teaching English and is a very good writer. And my daughter Madeline is 22 and is at college in Boston and kind of flits between Emerson College where she's a visual and media arts person and Berkeley College of Music and the New England Conservatory of Music. So they're both very creative people. So maybe it was partly wiring, but Part uh, and, and both extraordinarily good writers, like very talented writers, I think, from very early on. So I think part of it is that just from day one, we were telling stories. It was there was so much storytelling in our family, and everything was about words, books, stories. You know, when the kids were growing up, you know, they they grew up in New York and then Hong Kong and then London, and. They just were always surrounded by books everywhere. And, you know, in the car, there would be books everywhere. And you'd be, I, I remember once, you know, taking Henry, our son, when we were in Hong Kong to whatever the Disney thing is, Disney World or Disneyland there in Hong Kong, and um, teaching him some poem while we were in the car. And then realizing that Madeline, who was much younger, must have been about five or something, had heard the poem and memorized it while Henry was memorizing it. And I think Henry was going to get some sort of prize for memorizing the poem. And then Madeline memorized it when she was like ridiculously young. And so there was always like, words were just there around you there, and stories. And, and so I think part of it is just creating an ecosystem 
in which books, words, and stories are valued. I, I remember this as a boy where I would, I, I would be with my father. Um, my father was a judge, but he would read the Oxford English Dictionary. And he would say, um, oh, son, do you, do you know the etymology of this word? And it wasn't fake. It was like there was a deep passion for language. I remember once hosting him. I may have told you this story before, Stig. I remember once he came to visit in New York. He was from London. And you know, by this time, he was probably about 70, shortly before he passed away. And um, he was sitting on this balcony that we had overlooking the Hudson River. And I went to do some work or shower or something. And I left him with an article by Michael Lewis from Worth Magazine in those days. It was a great article that he'd written about Alan Greenspan, then the Fed chief. And I thought, oh, my dad, who loves the stock market, will enjoy this article by this great writer. And when I came back, my father was reading Sophocles in ancient Greek on the balcony on his own. So nobody in the world is watching him. And that's what he's choosing to read. And there's something I admire so much about that. Like um, my mother was equally incredibly literate, like and, and a very good writer. And so that creation of an ecosystem where something is valued is hugely powerful. And and so if you think about the kind of ecosystem that you create for your kids, if it's a if it's full of an emphasis on flash and money and possessions and showing people how rich you are and that's what they're going to pick up on. And so they're going to pick up on our behavior. And I'm not saying this to be critical. It's like it, it, of anyone, it, it, you know, some of these things are sort of unconscious and we just pick them up from our parents. But I think there's nothing more powerful than A, how you structure your ecosystem, like to fill it with books. You know, there are books just sort of spilling off every counter. I mean, my, my bookshelves can't take the books anymore. So they're stacked up on the floor, they're stacked up everywhere. And I just, you know, it's like a compulsion. And so on one level, it's kind of irksome for my wife, no doubt, although she's, uh, you know, I mean, you know, she has like a cum laude literature degree from Barnard as well. I mean, she's highly literate and was a writer, but it's still irksome to have books everywhere, but it's a great ecosystem. So, so A, that's really important and B, just the behavior that you're modeling. And so as with any aspect of parenting, they see what you do, not listen to what you say. And so if they, if they see you reading, I mean, my, you know, my daughter Madeline, who's back home from college at the, at the moment, saw me come home from the city on Saturday from New York City. And I'm just sitting there in my study reading this Japanese novel. And my wife's like, can we go listen to this music? Because there's a concert around the corner. And my daughter sees how painful it is for me to drag myself away from reading the book in my study to go to this concert. And as soon as, you know, and I love music, but as soon as I could duck out, I went back home and read the book. And, you know, the modeling of behavior is just huge because your kids can hear when you're being hypocritical and when you're not, you know, when you say to them, oh, you should read, but then you're just watching TV. They see that. One of the ways that I encourage reading, and I, I don't even know if I should be encouraging reading, but I love giving away books. There's just nothing better than just giving away books. I used to give away my own books, but I kind of felt ultimately it was quite self-serving. I was just, uh, you know, I was just so proud when you had your first book, you're like, oh my God, the whole world should know about it. And then you realize whenever you're written in a county book, no one really wants to read it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, now I started to give away Richer, Wiser, Happier, not, not just because it's better, but it, it, I also find that it breaks the ice. I'm quite shy whenever I meet new people and I really don't do small talk well. I've, I actually have a practice before I jump into 
every call I have, what should I talk about whenever we small talk? Because it, it just doesn't come natural to me. And so one trick I would like to, to hand off is that if you're quite familiar with a, with a book, could be Richer, Wiser, Happy or whatnot, it's just great to have that as a security blanket for you if you're not too comfortable about too many people around you. And it will always give you something you can small talk about if you kind of feel like the weather and what do you do is sort of like too used. So you can go that route. Whenever you give books away to friends and family, I would also say make sure not to be too passive aggressive. Don't, don't give a, uh, a book about how to lose weight to your obese friend if that person has not expressed any kind of wish about going in that direction. But, you know, I, I always want to pick up on, you know, if, if I have a friend who talks about Buffett, not just like, I know you're interested in Buffett, so let's talk about it. But if you really sense a, a genuine interest, give that person the snowball or the essence of Warren Buffett. If they are interested in macroeconomics, you know, I, I also love giving away Dahlia's book, The Changing World Order. I think it's a magnificent book, but uh, and it's also like, great at sparking a conversation. And so, so what I, would, what I would do, you know, I was thinking about what you said the other day, William, about keep the candy away. And I kind of feel like let's do the opposite whenever it comes to book. Like, let's, you know, have the candy right in front of you. So what I would do is that I would order a stack of books that I know I want to give away. Just because if I'm, if I'm going out the door, you know, I, I might just think about it at that point in time. So make sure you always have books you can give away if people come in your home or if you're going to meet up with a business contact or friend or whatnot, just to make it easier for yourself to give away those books. And also, if you have 10 copies of the same, you're probably going to force yourself to give at least some of them away. At least that's one approach I, I use to... I also say, whenever you do that, make sure not to expect anything. Don't, don't expect anyone to send you a book report or anything like that. Give it away, give it into the universe and see if anything comes back. And if it does, it's wonderful if someone wants to discuss whatever kind of book or if they find a, a one page to help them. And, and if that doesn't happen, that's okay too. If not, nothing happens and they just smile, they receive it, they never read it, that, that's okay. It should be giving in it in the right spirit. I, I think that's huge. The giving and sharing of books is a really, really beautiful thing when done in the right spirit. And I, 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 had, a, I had a lovely example of it the other day where a friend of mine, Samuel Goldberg, who's someone I met through the, through the book, who wrote to me at some point, we started talking. And he's a really high quality individual. We got on a Zoom call a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about something. And I, I think he was asking me something about meditation. And he was sort of saying how He'd never, never really managed to kind of bed down a meditation practice. And, and so I was, not that I'm any great meditation master by any means, but I was giving him so, some advice on some things that had helped me. And I was mentioning the 10% Happier app, which I think is a very good app and that there are some very good teachers on there. I, I haven't used it in a while because I do other stuff. But one of the really good teachers is this guy, George Mumford, who's a former heroin addict who ended up totally turning his life around and coaching people like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan with meditation. And I said to this guy, Samuel, you know, in his first book, The, um, the Mindful Athlete, I think it's called. Uh, and it's an interesting book. And there are a couple of really great interviews that he's done on the 10% Happier podcast. And I, I said, he's got a new book, but I haven't got it yet. I haven't read it yet. So, but I'm sure that'll be interesting too. And about 24 hours later, I get a copy of that book from Samuel with a really lovely note thanking me for spending the time chatting with him. And, and it was just really thoughtful. It was a really nice thing that he'd, he'd heard that this was a guy I'm interested in, that a guy who's impressed me. 
and I hadn't got around to buying his new book yet, which I would surely have done at some point, but I obviously got distracted and forgotten to buy it. And it only came out a few weeks ago, I think. And he bought it. And there was nothing cynical about it. There was nothing kind of manipulative. It was just a really kind gesture. You know, I had done something to help him by just talking to him for, you know, there's nothing, you know, I'm trying to get out of giving him advice. He's just a very talented young person. I'm happy to help him. And he did something kind of really selfless and gracious. And I've seen that with him a couple of times before where he's, he's given me a couple of books and he's much younger. I mean, he's, I think he's 24. And here he is giving books as a gift to a 54-year-old who is trying to help him and, and share some insight about things that I've learned over the years. And so I think that spirit of giving people books without an agenda, just because you think they'll like them and it'll help them in some way, that's a very beautiful thing. And it's something I, I remember Arnold Vandenberg saying to me at one point that his hobby is giving people books. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that over the last few years, I've got well over 20 books from Arnold. And I'm, I've definitely sent him a lot of books over the years. And there's something kind of really beautiful about that, that you're, just, you're not counting, you're not trying to think of Cialdini and the reciprocation bias and how is this person going to help me. You're like, let me send a book to this person that I think might spark something in them. And sometimes you never hear back from that person. Often you never hear back from that person. I remember, yeah, I mean, I've had this multiple times where I sent, I sent someone a 23-volume book and I never heard back. And I'm like, I have no idea if, if he got it. And maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But that's okay. And that's so important that you say that. That should be the spirit. I wanted to bring up another thing that we do here at TIP about encouraging reading. But it's very important to say that it should not come from a place of give business books and then you can model something in Excel that shows you have a positive ROI because now your team are more aligned. That's not the spirit you should do. I just wanted to to provide a few examples of something that I found working for, for our organizations, perhaps others out there, whether regardless of which organization they're, they're a part of, might, might find useful. But I, we had this principle, and this was instituted like years back, that if anyone wanted a book, they can just invoice it to TIP. And then TIP could just... You never uh, told me that. That would have been dangerous. Dick. No. And, and <laughs> this was announced on Slack. So, and William, you're not on that group, but... Uh, I actually thought about, oh my God, like, and, and this was probably back in 2016, 2017, the original, and then we sort of like resurfaced it a few times. And I was thinking, hmm, what, what would William do? Would he, uh, would he like order this rare book collection from no, uh, I whatever? Wanna, I wouldn't want to take advantage. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, of course, William, you're, you're free to do that. But this was something we actually relaunched here a few weeks ago. And I sort of like wanted to tell about experience because we have a system where you know, everyone can order any kind of book that they want, and then uh, TAP will uh, give them that reimbursement. And it didn't work that well. We had a few who did that, but nothing really happened. And then whenever it happened, it was very often because I communicated something to the team like, now I'm reading this book. Perhaps you want to check it out. And then, I don't know, half the team or whatever would, would then uh, pick it up. And I, I spoke with quite a few members on the team and, you know, I heard different explanations why. So what I decided to do was to curate a book list of books I've read and I could, I would always be open to discuss that book, but that was not the intention of doing it. It was to say, I read those books. And if that resonates with you, make sure to order them any point in time. And not only that, you can, of course, also reading it through the workday. So you should not feel like it's an extra task. There was actually, I don't know if I, if I made it sound like it, 
it feels like a task because they could read it throughout the workday. It's just like, make sure to read if you want to. And if you don't want to, then that's fine too. And what happened, because we only had 12 books on that list, was that so many ordered from that list. I wonder why that was the case. The conclusion I came up with was that whenever you go on Netflix, there's so many movies in there that often I happen not to watch any of them. There are just too many. and I have too many choices. Whereas if you have 12 or whatever kind of number you come up with, it's a lot easier to say, well, at least six of them, no. (laughs) And then there are only six left. And I might have read two of them, but not the other four. That's all the four books. This is one of the lessons of that Barry Schwartz book, right? The Paradox of Choice is that when you're in the supermarket and there are like 35 types of luxury jam, like, what do I do? And I think that, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about with simplicity before when it comes to investing, that simplicity is kind of this master principle that sometimes you don't actually want to choose between a hundred different cars or a hundred different stocks or a hundred different funds. I, I, I don't know. I, I thought, I, I think at some point I'm going to have to buy a new car. And I was thinking, um, yeah, I've had this sort of okay Honda CRV for many years. And I was thinking about the fact that Tom Gaynor now drives a, what is it, the Toyota RAV hybrid thing. And I was like, I know that Tom will have done a lot of work to research this, or at least that he'll have good standards, you know, like he'll have applied a good filter. So I'm sort of like, okay, so I know now that it's between the Honda CRV and the RAV4, because I know that Tom has done the work and I know that he's not really into flash. And what, you know, he's not, he's not trying to sort of show people how rich or successful he is. He wants a really good car that's going to last a long time, that's going to be reasonably good for the environment and stuff like that. And so there's something about simplifying the choice. So I think you were tapping into that when you offered people 12 books, not an entire library. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there are many dimensions to that. Part of it is that you can say, start with 12 books, and then next quarter, you might introduce another six books. I think that's way to go about it. Also, not to overwhelm people. One of my favorite books, that's Paul Charles Almanac. And I don't know, it's probably like 60 bucks or 80 bucks. I I don't know exactly the the cost. And there might also be an element that people want to be nice, you know, like William said, that he would never take advantage of an offer like that. And to some people, you know, who might not buy books, they might be saying, oh my God, like 60 bucks. And, you know, we're like 20 people ordering the same book, like $1,200, like just in books. And no one's going to ask us about it. No one's going to figure out if if we read it and we might just give it off to someone else. So I think that a lot of people want to give books to others. And then also other people perhaps want those books, but there's just something lost in translation where they might not feel comfortable about doing that. And sometimes you sort of like have to make it happen <laughs> if, if, you, if you want to do that. And, and this was just like based on my own experience, you know, professionally with friends, you know, William, I think you had a wonderful example about what you did with your kids. I don't know if this serves as inspiration for, for anyone, but those were at least some of my reflections on how to encourage reading and how to give that gift to others. And just, you know, for the last time, I probably just want to say that give it in the spirit of it's okay if nothing happens. Like what you were getting at before there, William, like the whole Chaldini reciprocity is such a powerful rule. Yes, but don't use that as your North Star. If people smell if they're being manipulated. I think, yes. And, and so the more you can avoid doing that and kind of trust that in some way, There are rewards of trying to behave decently and honorably and kindly and generously, but they may not be direct rewards. It's not like, I'm going to give this to this person and they're going to love me or they're going to hire me. It's like, no, no, no. You you put out stuff in the world 
And then you trust the fact that if you're a decent, generous soul, at least for the most part, you know, good stuff is going to happen. You're going to draw good people into your life and you're going to have good experiences with them. I don't know. I'm more and more convinced that that's the case. I think when you see people behave generously and kindly and selflessly, you just want that person in your life. And so I think there are tremendous benefits to behaving that way. And I, I love the fact that I'm surrounded by people who give books to each other. And without, I don't know, my son, my son came back home recently, and he'd got me a couple of books. And, you know, and I, I don't know, I love that, that my 25 year old son is already like gifting books. What a beautiful thing. Yeah, he must have good parents. Ah. <laughs> Good upbringing, William. He knows, he knows the way to my heart. <laughs> he, he does. William, this has been a wonderful conversation. Do you have anything you want to, to add here before we, we round off the episode? I wanted to mention two very specific books that I've read recently that I, I think would be worth people taking note of. And one, this book, which is by Scott Patterson, who's a Wall Street Journal writer who wrote things like Quants and Dark Pools, I think. And he's written a book called Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis. I got a copy very early because it's edited by Rick Horgan, who is my editor of my book at Scribner, and who's had like 100 bestsellers. And it's just a, he's a famously good editor. And it's a very interesting book. It focuses a lot on people like Nassim Taleb and Mark Spitznagel. So these chaos kings who are basically betting on disruption. They're betting on things going wrong in society. And it's a, it's a thought-provoking and interesting book, and it's timely. And one, it's well told. He's a good writer. I'm biased. I mean, I, I wrote a blurb for it, you know, and I, I want it to do well, but it deserves to do well. But the thing that's really important, I think, is the observation that the world is in some ways becoming more fragile and vulnerable to these extreme events partly because of technological interconnectedness. You know, the amount of travel, global travel, for example, increases the likelihood of pandemics. The fact that we're all technologically interconnected raises the risks in terms of, um, you know, cyber warfare or power outages or, or the like. You know, you've got climate change as this kind of systemic global risk that, that's increasing. And so there are all of these, these kind of areas of fragility, to use a, the Seam Taleb term, that I think force us to think about how to build more anti-fragile lives and anti-fragile portfolios. And I think every investor has to think about that topic. You know, if you're someone like Spitznagel or Taleb, you're able to use, you know, elaborate esoteric schemes using options that mean that, you know, most of the time you'll lose money you know, day to day, you're going to lose little amounts of money. And then there'll be some extreme event like a market meltdown or a pandemic or something. And, you know, you'll make hundreds of percent very quickly. And that's their game. That doesn't really suit me and my temperament and my skill set, which is not a great term for my skills, which are limited in the area of options and like. But value investing, in a way, is because of the emphasis on margin of safety, is a very good response to an increasingly fragile world that's, that's vulnerable to these extreme events. And so keeping money on the side so that you can take advantage of these moments of dislocation, living within your means so that 
you're not over leveraged and not suddenly going to have to sell stuff in a vulnerable moment. These are really important. So think of when COVID took flight, I think around sort of, you know, January, February, March, 2020. So early on, I, I was able to buy Berkshire a couple of times, two or three times, because I hadn't overreached. And, you know, in retrospect, I wish I bought more. But the fact that I'd been indoctrinated with all of these value principles, and I knew that in a time of dislocation, to buy something like Berkshire that was hated at the time, that was very helpful to me. And so I think this is an interesting and timely book, and I would recommend that. So uh, just really quick, uh, William, I just yeah. want to say that Clay, our co-host, he's going to interview Scott about yeah. Chaos Kings. The episode is 558 and will be released June 8th. So it would already be in our feed whenever you're Great. listening to this. So Yeah, I, I think I introduced them maybe. Scott is a very good writer and a very interesting guy. And I, I, you know, I think this theme is one to take seriously, this idea that in a fragile world that's vulnerable to extreme events, how are you going to operate in a way that makes you more resilient? That's something we should all think about. The other book that is the one I recommended to Nick Sleep and that I, I bought a copy, I listened to it on Audible and then, and then I immediately bought the paperback because I needed to write notes in it. And then I also got it for a well-known fund manager because I was like, you need to read this as well, just because it's so beautiful, is this book, The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson. And it's an old book that's just one of the best books I've read in recent years. And it's, it's nonfiction and it's this journey that this guy goes on to, I guess it's sort of the, the Himalayas to, you know, 16,000 feet in Nepal. And he's with a great biologist, field biologist. And in some way, they're searching for a snow leopard and also for, um, for these blue sheep. But it's also kind of a spiritual voyage, a spiritual journey. And it's just really beautiful. And I, I don't know, I, I think I have a copy of it here. Yeah. And this will give you a sense of why it's worth reading Anyth- anything like this. Like I'll give you one paragraph here. So he says, in this very breath that we take now lies the secret that all great teachers try to tell us what one Lama refers to as the precision and openness and intelligence of the present. The purpose of meditation practice is not enlightenment. It is to pay attention even at unextraordinary times, to be of the present, nothing but the present, to bear this mindfulness of now into each event of ordinary life. In some ways, this journey where he's trying to find something, he's trying to find this incredibly elusive, enigmatic animal, and he's trying to find great spiritual wisdom. And then he's like, no, no, I just need to be here now in this moment. And in a way, this goes back to what we were talking about with Jason Karp, where you know, you can be so desperate to get ahead because, you know, you fall under the spell of thinking my performance has got to be better and better and I've got to accumulate more accolades and better returns and more reputation. And again and again, when you read these great thinkers, you come back to the realization that I've got to be present now. And so, yeah, we want to be becoming something more and improving ourselves and growing and be continuous learning machines. But we also, there's this paradox that we have to constantly be bringing ourselves back to this present moment and be fully awake in this moment and appreciating where we are right now. And it's such a simple lesson, but such a beautiful and profound lesson that we have to be here right now in this moment, fully awake, aware of what's going on around us and sort of appreciating where we are and what we have right now, while also trying to become better. 
I cannot think of a better way to end this conversation, William. Thank you for joining and, and talking about books. I mean, sort of like starting or ending where we started off. How lucky we are, William, that we can sit here a regular weekday and talk about books and the love of books. I mean... It's an amazing gift. And, and this, is, this is actually part of what I'm working on in my own life is to appreciate the gift that I have now. And so, yes, I want to be trying to improve and become better and, and get more. And, but why? Like, I want to actually appreciate what I have now. And the fact that I get to be here with you, my friend and colleague, and chat about books and stuff that's had an influence on us and try to share some ideas, that's a re really beautiful gift. And I, I don't want to be so busy chasing after stuff that I fail to appreciate the gift that we have right now that we get to do this, which is it's pretty splendid. So thank you. It's been a privilege, William. And yeah, thank you for everyone who made it this far into the episode. Thank you for everyone. Um, all three of you. All three of you. T our tens and tens of listeners. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, let's end it there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.